Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. This is Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. You may know Melissa Harris-Perry as a cable TV news host. She had her own show on MSNBC until 2016. But before TV, she was a professor at the University of Chicago, Princeton, Tulane, and now she's the Maya Angelou Presidential Chair at Wake Forest University. Harris Perry is most passionate about teaching, but she's also an author and a podcast host. She's the founder and president of the Anna Julia Cooper Center. It's an independent organization advancing justice through intersectional scholarship and action. We'll talk more about that in a bit. Melissa joins us today to talk about her careers in education and media and about what she's taking away from this political moment. Dr. Melissa Harris-Perry, welcome to Disrupted. Hello, my sister. It is so nice to talk to you. It is so great to have you on. You know, this is an exciting time to be a political scientist, and it's also overwhelming in some ways. And your voice is one that we often look to to help us make sense of all of this. So I want to get right into it because there's so much to process. You know, we are now a week away from the start of the second impeachment trial for former President Donald Trump. And it has made it really difficult to teach political science because all the things we tell our students, our standards and norms go out the window. How -hmm. are you making sense of this current political moment? You know, it's so funny to hear you say that because in 2016, I had this um, extraordinary opportunity to lead a bipartisan group of undergraduate students. And we went, um, as we used to say, from Iowa to the inauguration, but it actually was Iowa to the inauguration and the Women's March in 2016. Uh, And it was, even in the context of the 2016 election, so much what was happening was consistently surprising. And I had kind of a framework for thinking about what all of these moments should be. And then there was what was happening in 2016. And during the inauguration, during sort of that week, uh, both before and after, I heard from nearly all of those students. uh, And the, the, the overwhelming feeling was, well, I guess we went to the last presidential inauguration that there ever will be like, yeah, that sense that, um, as as different as 2016 was, um, the the intervening four years and now the aftermath of what uh, of what our democracy and our democratic institutions are um, is dramatically changed. So I guess I'd say that. Um, like anyone with an addiction, um, I take it day to day, um, you know, and one day at a time, and uh, try to um, both reflect on history so that there's no moment uh, that I that I'm comfortable with the language of unprecedented. I always presume there's some level of precedent. I just kind of search for it. Um, And then I also try as hard as it is to get comfortable with remembering that change is also nearly constant. And the story we tell 
about political institutions is that they are static, but they're not, right? They're always moving. Um, they're always reshaping. And it's just that in moments like this, I think we become, um, we become more attuned to, um, to how in flux our institutions really are. So let's talk about that search. And, you know, you mentioned this idea of unprecedented and, and like you, I'm totally tired of hearing that word overused because it often is an expression of, of ignorance, of ignorance of how we got to this moment of, of who was involved in that. And we are now two weeks to the day from the inauguration of Kamala Harris as vice president of the United States. And Melissa, if I'm honest with myself, it was a bittersweet moment. It was this excitement to see history in the making. But frankly, there was also this disappointment and somewhat a bit of anger that in this history making moment, we couldn't fully celebrate it and embrace it as we had so many years past because a week prior, domestic terrorists had taken over the Capitol and lodged these really credible thoughts. How do you hold that tension between the possibility of embracing that politics is always in motion and then the reality that often for underrepresented groups, you can't even be in the moment without worrying about the consequence? I think it's uh, always helpful to remember that the Black people who were lynched were overwhelmingly the most accomplished individuals um, in their communities. And so I wanna say that one more time because I think although, um, although I think most Americans do understand that the, um, the lie of black men's uh, sexual predation of white women is not the truth of what underlies lynching, um, Nonetheless, I think there is a, a, a version of our understanding of lynching that continues um, to presume that it is those who had the least power, the fewest resources, um, the least status who were most vulnerable. But it's precisely the opposite, right? It was the shop owners, um, it was the folks who owned their own land, uh, it was the people who voted or ran for office, right? The, the more um, successful by all um, American meritocracy measures of success that a Black person or a Black family was, the more vulnerable they became to the most vicious, life-threatening, death-dealing aspects of white supremacy as it has been played out on Black bodies in the United States. And I think part of the reason it's helpful to remember that is that we will feel less sorry for ourselves about not being able to celebrate accomplishment or achievement um, without the um, attendant um, expectation of backlash and of violence. That is in fact the black American story of accomplishment, right? Black folks who got free are the ones always looking over our shoulders, right? For the sound of the dogs that will be pursuing us. That is what the story is. So, so I think it helps us feel less like something was stolen from us individually or from our generation or from our moment and more that it is something that has been stolen from the black American experience in the broadest sense. 
but also to remember that Black folks at every point, um, no matter whether the accomplishments were on the basis of sort of an American meritocracy version of accomplishment, or whether it was our own uh, extraordinary ways of celebrating ourselves, we've also always found joy. Um, you know, okay, I hear that maybe we couldn't fully like breathe into it, but I saw enough chucks and pearls to be pretty clear. Black women were mostly breathing into it, right? We're mostly fine. I, I think, you know, we were worried uh, in, in at the end of 2008, beginning of 2009, after the election of President Obama, that um, that violence um, against him and against his family um, would be next. Now, the last thing I'll say is um, I probably am a little, was a little less enthusiastic overall than a lot of folks about um, Harris's moment. And I wanna explain, this is not like some kind of overly woke, you know, I'm too old to be overly woke, right? I'm, I got a mortgage and a kid in college. I'm highly conservative um, by, by a movement for Black Lives standards. But um, I guess what was always exciting to me about the Obama election and reelection was the extent to which Black people had by our own votes made that choice um, from the very beginning, right? From Iowa to, you know, to, to New Hampshire, to South Carolina and forward, it had been our efforts, it had been our decision to push back against a story that we couldn't, and now I'm gonna sound ridiculous and say, yes, we can, right? Um, with Harris, the story is so different um, because the vice presidency is so different, right? Not because of her per se, but the vice presidency is a decision made by the presidential candidate, by the party, um, right? And so, yes, Black women, Black people um, were, you know, the core glue foundation and movement activity of the 2020 presidential uh, and vice presidential win, but I don't think it will ever feel to me quite the same, right? I won't own it quite the same until um, until Black voters choose, you know, President Harris, um, you know, as if they make that choice, or whomever the next president is from our own communities who we choose in that way. So let's talk then about that context, because it is important, as you said, you know, often we hear people talk about the use of violence at the Capitol and to say we are a country built on a peaceful transfer of power. And we know from decades of studying black politics, that is simply not true, that when people assert themselves as citizens and attempt to vote, they are met with dogs, they are met with fire hoses, they are met with their homes being firebombed or their churches destroyed. But with that context as a backdrop, do you think there's an opportunity to remake the vision of the vice presidency? Or do you think we should not focus so much on the individual in the office as opposed to the institution? So, um, so that that's right. There have there is no um, solitary notion of a peaceful transfer of power that is borne out throughout the whole American project, right? Even, even the transfer of power to the preservation of the union, right, takes four years of bloody civil war. And then, uh, you know, you're quoting or, or citing many of those instances of voter suppression and violence uh, in the mid 20th century. But if we go back even to the mid 19th century, right, the, the kind of violence against um, those black folks who voted I think we should feel free to be thrilled about Vice President Harris um, and 
to feel a sense of particularity in our connection to Vice President Harris and to hold um, a sense of desire for a very particular responsiveness from Vice President Harris um, to, to the community that is black folks and particularly maybe black women and women of color because she also has some very particular stories and communities from which she emerges. Now, the vice presidency is not historically a powerful position. Now, that doesn't mean one can't be Dick Cheney, right, and make it a powerful position. And given the nature of the U.S. Senate um, right now, she will have more power um, than she might otherwise have um, as a vice president, simply because of how um, there may be moments when she is casting, right, a vote that is the critical vote. But the number of times that's going to happen are very small because of the filibuster, right? So, so this goes to your, your point about structures. Like, on the one hand, I want to be able to think about ways that um, Vice President Harris might um, wield power and particularly reshape institution. On the other hand, I keep thinking the institution we most need to remake is the Senate. Um, and therefore, I'm almost sad that she's not Senator Harris um, in the same ways that I I've always thought it was a terrible idea um, that Hillary Clinton didn't remain Senator Clinton. When I think of who Senator Clinton could be right now and the, the work that a Senator Clinton could be doing um, in, uh, in our very dysfunctional U.S. Senate, uh, it always makes me sad that the presidency um, continues to draw our, our public attention um, and our perhaps our most extraordinary leaders um, when that legislative power um, is, is really so crucial. Melissa Harris-Perry is the Maya Angelou Presidential Chair at Wake Forest University. We'll continue our conversation with her after the break. This is Disrupted. Stay with us. Welcome back to Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. Today we're talking with Melissa Harris-Perry. She's the Maya Angelou Presidential Chair at Wake Forest University. She's also an author and co-host of the podcast, System Check. I asked her how we increase civic education and awareness so that people really understand how government works and what we can do to move beyond the symbolic into the substantive. I think of myself as Miss Frizzle, but social studies version, right? So um, if I could do anything uh, and and like earn enough to send my kid to college, um, you know, I'd be a middle school social studies teacher. Um, of course, they don't really have those anymore. And I don't mean to be um, flip about it, but our movement away from a notion of civic education as a core part of K through 12 education is devastating and meaningful, and we are reaping some of it now. Now that doesn't mean everybody's gonna go around quoting the Declaration of Independence or know who all the justices on the Supreme Court are. Um, but as much as Again, as a as a black feminist, I think we have to challenge um, some of the like basic narratives of um, the American project. I also think it'd be fine to tell some of the basic narratives of the American project. Like at this point, I would take some good old fashioned American history lies, right? That we, that we were founded by honest men who, who you know chopped down the cherry tree and then told on themselves like. I wish that we would even educate our young people in the aspirational aspects 
of the American project, as well as sort of some of the basic, there are three branches of government, right, version of, uh, of, of political science. So that's, that's one answer, right, is we educate people by genuinely and actually educating in the K through 12 by shifting the incentive structures away from the, um, you know, math and limited reading that currently exists in a post leave no child behind world um, to remembering that the arts and the social sciences are, are not adjuncts or co-curricular, right? They're central to who we are as a people. And the second thing I would say is I think we have to fundamentally shift the incentives of the, um, of the American media. When I, uh, when I think of the institutions that have failed us, um, American broadcast media, and particularly American television uh, and televised news, have truly failed over the past four years. And, and they haven't failed because they're bad people um, or dumb people, it's neither one of those. Um, they've mostly failed because they respond to a set of incentives that um, operate exactly the opposite from um, broad-based public interest education. So, you know, radio is actually doing a great job. Uh, podcasts are doing a really pretty good job in explaining how the world works, getting people engaged. Um, but what we do when we come home at night is we flip on the TV while we make dinner. That's, you know, some of us flip on a podcast for most of us, what's going on? What's the weather? What's the news? Um, and we have the... <laughs> since the 1980s, since the decisions made by the Reagan and then the Clinton presidencies to create this enduring profit incentive for um, televised news, um, we, have, um, we have made it profitable um, for television to divide us um, rather than to educate us. So let's talk about that because you were very candid in 2016, after leaving MSNBC, that often the monster that people complained about in Donald Trump, you are very candid to say that in many ways, media created that monster or incentivized that monstrous action. And in particular, TV networks that covered him during the, the election and during the campaign because it drove ratings, it attracted the attention, and that profit motive became more central than how do we talk about the fragility of democracy, but also the role. And now we're in a space in 2021 where so many TV networks are trying to diversify their hosts and diversify their anchors and, and cover these stories in different ways. Is there redemption in that? Or do you feel that there needs to be a reckoning of what is the role of journalists in this climate to be responsible? So again, I, I wanna move away from the individual journalists, most of whom I think are um, either um, sort of decent people um, who are just doing their jobs or actually really extraordinarily talented people and, and really actually move it again to the, to the system or to the structures, the decision makers. So again, I, that's right. When I left MSNBC, the, the battle, the fight that I was having was about editorial control over the show. And, and most specifically what I call the empty podium problem, 
that we were being directed um, from third floor executives to take the empty podium. In other words, when Donald Trump was going to speak, but was not yet even speaking, to halt all other conversation, um, not to even take other Republican candidates, but exclusively to take the empty podium with a breaking news banner saying Donald Trump will speak. And then Donald Trump would say horrifying things and there was no directive from the third floor to counter those horrifying things with, for example, fact. Um, so, you know, he'd say, oh, you know, all Mexican immigrants are rapists. And then we would say, all right, after the break, next, and, you know, right. So I couldn't be part of that. And it, this is not about self-righteousness. It is about tenure. Um, I had never given up my real job. So I was able to leave. Not that it was easy, not that it has been easy, um, not that it didn't you know, exact a great cost, but it was possible for me uh, in a way that for most working journalists, it isn't. That's their job. And if they walk out, especially publicly, then they won't have another job. So how do we create an incentive structure that moves away from third floor executives or whatever floor they're on, wherever they are, um, from taking the empty podium or for the next four years, taking the tweet, right? Whatever the hell he tweeted was leading the news. One way that we do that is the power of consumption. You know, what I'd like to say is that legislative action can do it. And of course it can. It was le legislative action that unleashed this um, monster. But, but at its core, we, we consume it. And we could, by turning it off, um, shift that incentive swiftly. And it can't happen with just your family or my family turning it off. I haven't had it on for years. So I can tell you, it's not just one family at a time, but rather it's organized action. Um, and I think this will go to the final point of what you said, which is about the diversifying of who sits in the anchor chair. That matters. Of course it does. I mean, you know, all praises to Tiffany and to Joy for, for sitting there, for being there, for speaking uh, in the ways that they can and that they do. And I'm just speaking specifically to MS here. Um, but it can't just be about black and brown faces because the deal is there will always be a young black reporter. There will always be someone who they can put in that chair when Soledad won't do it, or Melissa won't do it, or Joy someday won't do it, or Tiffany won't do it, right? They're all, because the world is full of young, smart, hungry journalists. So we got to change the structure so that Soledad, Melissa, Tiffany, Joy, Jonathan, whoever, can all sit in those chairs, right? Nobody thinks there's a cap on how many white boys there should be. Um, and in the end, if all of us are constrained to taking the empty podium, it won't matter whether we do it um, with a black face or a brown face or a white face. We gotta have editorial space. And that really is gonna come, I think most swiftly at this point from institutional change brought by consumers. And I think that's the piece of it, Melissa, that is so central, whether we are talking about the media space or higher education or politics in general, that it's not enough to just drop a person in or to think that two or three people can change what's been cultivated for decades and, and in the case of American politics for centuries. And at the same time, there is this pressure to want to cultivate those spaces, to cultivate those platforms, always realizing that it may be a temporary 
presence. And then what do you do when you have that platform and you have that space? It's one of the things that I've always appreciated about your career is that you've had these different platforms and you've also created space for others. One of the the real benefits of your show is that it introduced us to people who were experts and change makers who may not have been nationally known figures, but certainly knew what they were talking about and were able to bring people in. Do you think that's an avenue for change now that we have newer platforms or this sudden interest that everyone seems to have in issues of diversity, for lack of a better term? You know, I, I always think myself the single best person to speak on that is is Farai Chidea, who, um, you know, there's a few people I, I have to point to in my life and I'm like, yep, but but for them, there's no me, right? Uh, and so Farai is, is among the most important, right? And not just in some like, I stand on her shoulders, which is really weird to me because by the way, people keep saying that to me and I'm like, God, no wonder my back hurts. Could you please? <laughs> This bridge on my back. I'm tired. Right. Yeah, like why are you standing on me? I'm not that old. God, stop it. Um, but uh, although I I appreciate the sentiment of it. Um, the second thing I'd say is everybody's got to make their own show. Uh, and whether your show is a podcast or whether it's your own, just like your Facebook page, or whether it is you know a, a nationally televised um, moment. You know, for me, it was ride it till the wheels come off, do every quirky thing. Um, You know, I have no business being here, but here I am. Uh, There's a black guy who's president and let's just do it. Like, you know, let's, let's book, let's book 30 guests a weekend and talk about Biggie's birthday and transportation policy. Um, And, and let's just do that because again, I, I knew it wouldn't last. I think that's different. For example, I'll just take the example of Soledad O'Brien, um, who is like Twitter vicious. I mean, she is like, oh God, I love. You it's know. like reading a whole different person now. There's there's no holds barred. It is, I have tolerated this my whole career. Now I'm going to give it to you straight and I don't care. And there's something liberating about reading those tweets. But the reason it works is because she ate. She ate the garbage. She pushed it down for decades. The part of why it's so, because the world is full of people tweeting angry stuff and it's not liberating, it's just annoying. But when Soledad O'Brien does it from the position and the and the the history and the competency and the and, and really just the putting up with it that she did for decades, it's a different power. And it only comes because she did swallow it for so long. And so I'll say, I think. All of us gotta, you know, we gotta make our own shows in this whole story. You know, the the young people in the streets this summer are the reason that networks thought they needed to diversify. It is maddening to me to think that no one thought we ought to have black and brown faces during the Trump years. Like wh- what? Like it's literally maddening. So you know, in some ways, they totally missed that the most crucial time for those voices was during those four years. Why? Because the pressure came externally from the Movement for Black Lives this summer. So even though the Movement for Black Lives didn't say, one of our goals is for you to hire a Black host, there was no way based on the environmental change, right, that they created. So everybody's got to run their own show. And, you know, I I don't think you'll ever see my name uh, listed um, as, you know, on a petition to ever 
ask anyone to be fired. It's not, doesn't mean I don't think it, but it's, I, I never, I never ask for fewer voices. I always only ask for more. Um, it's, I just, I'd, I'd like to see more of us saying more about whatever sets of things. And so that's why I look to people like Ava and uh, Carrie Washington to um, uh, Issa Rae. I mean, these folks who are making sure that there are more voices. Now, and all of them are media in a Hollywood way, but it doesn't mean they're not producing narrative work um, that, that is deeply civically minded. We're talking with author, professor, media commentator, Melissa Harris-Perry. We're going to take a break now so a few of my colleagues at Connecticut Public Radio can tell you how to support the station and the programming here, including Disrupted. Stay with us. I'm Katie Tularski here with Harriet Jones, and we are listening to Disrupted along with you, and we are excited to be here asking for your pledge of support of Disrupted and all of the programming, all of the new programming that we have here on Connecticut Public Radio. Uh, call us now, 1-800-584-2788, or go online to wnpr.org slash donate. This is our February, short February membership campaign, and we, um, you know, we're only here with your support. We're so excited to have been able to bring Kalila Brown-Dean on as a host. Um, I've been working with her and producer Daniela Luna. I think we're at about 20 episodes now, so we're learning a lot, and uh, we're having a lot of fun and having some really important um, conversations. So we hope you're appreciating this um, show. Again, call us and support it, 1-800-584-2788, or go online to WNPR.com. Hi, Katie. Yeah, it's just great to be able to hear, you know, a new fresh voice uh, on Connecticut Public Radio. We always aim to give that kind of a platform to new talent and, and different perspectives. Um, of course, Kalia Brandy, a noted academic in, in Connecticut and, you know, a longtime guest for us. She was a guest on many of our shows and always really illuminating and really interesting perspectives. So, you know, um, Katie and uh, some of our other uh, leadership team had the great idea of, well, let's bring her on as a host. Let's actually see what it would be like to let her loose on her own show and see what kind of perspective she would bring to that. Um, and it's just, it really has been illuminating. It's just been great to see this new show launch, to see what kind of guests Kalila comes up with, the topics she comes up with. Um, you know, even just the, the name of the show, Disrupted, really gives you a sense of what she's trying to do with this. Um, and it, I've loved listening to it. I've had a great time listening to it. And hopefully you have too. Hopefully it's something that you feel like you could put your dollars behind and feel like that's a great investment in our service and in the kind of radio that you want to hear, that you want us to be bringing to you. And if that's the case, we'd love it if you could give us a call. 1-800-584-2788. 1-800-584-2788. You can spend a couple of minutes on the phone with a friendly volunteer there if you'd like to talk to somebody. If you'd rather not, then you can go to wmpr.org and just click through, click on the donate button, and you can uh, take a look there at all the different thank you items we have for you. And you can very quickly get on and, and uh, give us your donation, get on with your day. So 1-800-584-2788 or wmpr.org. And thank you so much for your pledge of support. Welcome back to Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. Let's continue our conversation with Melissa Harris-Perry. She's the Maya Angelou Presidential Chair at Wake Forest University. She's an author, 
and recently wrote profiles about influential Black women like Stacey Abrams of Georgia and Sherilyn Ifill of the Legal Defense Fund. She's also profiled young leaders who are demanding change. I asked her what she's learning from writing about these women. So again, this is just my my sort of Miss Frizzle version of myself. I, I mean, if somebody calls me up and says, will you talk to Sherilyn Ifill? Yes, right. For money, for for no money, you know, on air, not on air, written, not written. Yes, I am fascinated by us. I, I remember my dad. Um, so, so let me back up and just give the tiniest part of my bio that I think many people probably already know. But I I was raised in a household um, where I have a, my father is African American, my mother is a white woman. The sister closest to me in age is also white. So she is the daughter of my mother and my mother's first husband. So both of her parents are white. And then my father has three children from his first marriage. So all three of them are African-American. So I got two big sisters who are um, who have two black parents, one big sister who has two white parents. Um, and then, uh, then there's me with one black and one white parent. I mostly say, say that to the same. And my older sisters were much older, like, 12 and 10 years older than me, like out of the house by the time I make any kind of sense in the world, right? They're gone, right? Right. They're building their own lives. And I remember when I was like 11, 10 or 11, my dad got me a subscription to Essence Magazine as my Christmas present. And I was like, wait a minute, what? <laughs> like, like I was just, yeah. right. I mean, every, I was so fascinated by how we look, by what we say, by, by the ways I saw myself both reflected and very much not reflected. Like, you know, especially like young black women now are way fiercer than I ever imagined being like, I, I don't, I don't do it for any other purpose. I don't write about and with young and um, elder black women for any other reason, except that I am genuinely interested. Um, it turns my brain on. I am fascinated by how we see and read and analyze the world. I'm fascinated by our style, um, by our sacrifices. Um, and, and I have been just weirdly lucky enough to be able to have those conversations I think a lot of us are already having, but to have them in some fairly rarefied spaces so that they have um, have broader audience. Do you ever have a moment where you step back and say, is this really what I'm doing? You know, most professors, we live in a classroom or now we live in a Zoom box, mm -hmm. it seems. But you, as you said, have had this opportunity to to hear these stories and to help tell these stories and to shape how other young girls and women can see what's possible for them. Did you imagine this when you were growing up? Have you just stepped into what you knew you would always do? Or are you still in a moment of awe? Oh, unfortunately, neither. I, I neither imagined it um, and I am uh, stunningly unaware and therefore frequently ungrateful about it. And, and I just wanna explain, I think all of us live in our own little worlds, um, no matter how big our world is. For example, TV was weird because I would just, you know, I'd be in the room with the guests at the table. So maybe, maybe only one other person, maybe alone, maybe with five people. 
but at a camera, like I had no idea who was watching or not watching. I never looked at numbers. Um, I was so traumatized by social media that I didn't read an at reply for about four years. Um, you know, in the years since, I guess it's been about five years since I left MSNBC, I have at various points um, completely exited public life, like altogether, like deleted the Twitter account for a year and a half. And um, so I... Um, I, I think because I am a X generation perfectionist, youngest child, um, nothing I do is ever good enough. No, you know, um, it, it doesn't matter if, you know, it doesn't matter if, if the glamour covers out with Sherilyn Eiffel, um, I feel uh, inadequate because, um, you know, the nation didn't, um, uh, didn't renew our podcast, right? We did 10 episodes and they were unable to renew. So we're like, Dorian and I are walking around right now looking for a home. And I just like, you know, asked my husband, I'm just like falling out and feeling very much like a failure. So what I'm hoping is that maybe, I, so I'm 47, how old am I? Okay, I'm 47 this year. So what I'm hoping is that maybe at 50, maybe in three more years, I'll be able to, um, I'll be able to be proud of myself. I don't, I definitely don't feel that right now. I also owe a lot of people a lot of money and tuition for my kid who's in college. So maybe also <laughs> when I have less debt, I will have more right? self, self pride. But Melissa, one of the things I, I've said it to you personally, and I want to say it in this space you have opened up a space for women, but particularly for black women to say it's okay to not feel okay. It's not okay to feel like you have it all together and nothing affects you. You know, Twitter can be vile and people can be cruel in ways that are completely unimaginable. And you've been candid about saying, yes, it does affect you. No human can say it does not. And you reflect that in your work. So your your book, Sister Citizen, to this day, eight years later, I have students who say it feels liberating to have mm -hmm. someone else name what they encounter just by being who they are or, you know, being black women in the academy in political science and dealing with all of those. Not I don't believe in microaggressions. It's just aggression mm -hmm. navigating those spaces. When you think about where we are, about the possibilities, the potential, the, the change that can come out of all of these disruptions, what are you hopeful for? Hmm. I, 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 for all of my um, inability to, to feel proud of my own accomplishments, I really am an optimist, I think, about the, the project and experiment of self-governance. And I mean that in the broadest sense. So, um, you know, it's the 50th anniversary of the publication of uh, Maya Angelou's I Know Why the Cage Bird Sings. And Dr. Angelou was my college advisor, which is such a ridiculous sentence. Every time I say it, I feel like, I can't believe that. When I think about things like, I can't believe that happened in my life. <laughs> like that's, that's mm -hmm. the one, because that's the one you don't earn or anything, right? It's just, that's just grace. That's just a gift. Um, so I was um, I was on a panel about the book uh, with other folks from Wake Forest this weekend, and um, we read again the chapter that is the graduation, um, 
And, you know, it's funny, I know this book so well, and yet I'd forgotten it starts with, um, it's, it's her eighth grade graduation, and I'd forgotten it starts with the yellow dresses, all the girls in the handmade yellow dresses, and it, you know, everything is about Beyonce. And so I, I'd forgotten the yellow dress when I thought about Lemonade. I was like, oh, I, I'd forgotten that that also spoke back to Dr. Angelo's graduation. But of course, the whole part of that is that, like, there's Black people accomplishing and living and doing their thing and being excited. And then in comes white supremacy and, and like craps all over it in the midst of this graduation. But it is the valedictorian, the Black valedictorian who then stands, delivers uh, Invictus and then sings Lift Every Voice and Sing. That shifts the whole spirit and tone, not only for that moment of the graduation, but really for Dr. Angelo's whole trajectory in life. And, and I guess that's what I'm hopeful for is that um, as cultural producers, as storytellers, and as members of our community, we have been the most aspirational Americans. We have been the people who after hundreds of years of slavery, our first actions in freedom were to find our families, build schools and engage in the political process. Like imagine that that's what we did. Imagine we were like, you know what I'm gonna do now? I'm gonna vote. <laughs> Welcome to freedom, <laughs> right? Right, like I'm gonna, I'm gonna find my family. I'm gonna build a school and I'm gonna, I'm gonna not only vote, I'm gonna run for office and I'm gonna risk my life to do so. I am always hopeful because of that. I, I it, there, for people who have known unfreedom in a way that I can't fathom, that they understood freedom to be about community, education, and self-governance, and that they did it against every single unspeakable violence to them their families and their community, it just, I have to be optimistic because they came out of enslavement. They came out of intergenerational chattel bondage. They built a school, found their families and voted. And so I, I don't know, I don't have a better strategy than that. <laughs> building, building our family in the broadest sense, our community, um, reading our books, writing our books and, and staying in the process. I have to tell you, you have brought such joy by mentioning that piece. I, in high school, did competitive public speaking. The piece that I won to get a scholarship to go to college was that graduation speech. And it connected me. I, I opened my book talking about that speech and that passage and how it helped me understand what my grandmother went through growing up in rural Virginia, graduating from a school that was called a training school not a high yeah. school, right? right? And that interconnection with all that's happening in the country today, it is a reminder of the people who made it possible, but also the work yet to be done. Melissa, this is the first week of Black History Month. And as you bring all of this together for us, share with our listeners about the Anna Julia Cooper Center, about mm -hmm. the work that you do and why it was so important to name this center after Anna Julia Cooper. 
I love Miss Anna. Oh my God, Miss Anna Julia Cooper is the best. So again, the best person on Anna Julia Cooper is actually Brittany Cooper. They are not related, um, but I. Uh, but Brittany Cooper is not her not her public book, but her scholarly book about um, Black women intellectuals. Uh, in that, she she actually calls um, Anna Julia. She uses Anna Julia Cooper as a verb. She talks about Anna Julia Anna Julia Coopering, which. Oh, I just love. Okay, so first I will I will point folks um, to her work. The second thing I'll say is you should read Anna Julia Cooper herself, A Voice from the South. Um, she was the foundational Black feminist, um, really not using the language of intersectionality, in other words, not the word, not the term, but among the first intersectional scholars. Um, I love her because she was an educator, like a school teacher in the most classic sense, but also an academic. This is a woman who uh, had been an extraordinary administrator and educator running what is now um, Dunbar, but was the M Street School in Washington, D.C. She got run out of town by the, you know, the old coalition of like rich white donors and their Negro lackeys who, you know, pushed her out as a powerful black woman. Uh, and her response was to go to France. <laughs> I love her. She was in her 50s, went to France to the Sorbonne and wrote her dissertation in French uh, and was like the fifth black uh, woman to ever, uh, black American woman to receive a PhD. Um, but she was born into slavery here in North Carolina um, and then left this extraordinary legacy uh, for us. And, uh, you know, we during our, our heyday, when we were at Wake Forest, Anna Julie Cooper Center did a ton of great work. Um, we are currently not on campus, we're independent, but at least what we continue to try to do right now, what we say is our strength is we have the power of convening. We still have one hell of a mailing list. <laughs> We've still got um, a, a extraordinary group of people who will respond to us when we call. And so we bring people together in the Zoom world um, in, at the moment, a series of online um, projects. So I would encourage folks to join the AJC Center this semester. We have a Black Lives Matter speaker series. We have a Black Women in Media and Politics speaker series. Um, and these are really interactive um, programs. And you can go back and see last semesters, which we did around disaster, race, and American politics. Um, we. Uh, hopefully, we'll continue to support uh, research by both um, uh, scholars in universities, but also independent scholars. Um, and the thing we were most proud of doing um, back in 2016 was leading a collaborative that um, pledged about $100 million at American uh, universities and think tanks um, to support work that uh, scholarship that advances justice for women and girls of color. So um, I love Anna. I love her as, a, as an institute. Uh, I love the people I've had a chance to work with as a result of that center. So we will be sure to post information and a link to the center on our page once this goes to air. And I have to say, Melissa, in a moment when things sometimes feel very heavy, you have reminded us that joy can be an act of resistance, but also those connections in a time when both Stacey Abrams and the Black Lives Matter movement have been nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize, which is fascinating for a lot of different ways. Having you for this conversation has been pretty great. Melissa Harris-Perry is the Maya Angelou Presidential Chair at Wake Forest University and also the founder and president of the Anna Julia Cooper Center. Disrupted is produced by Daniela Luna and Katie Tularski. 
Now, here are some ways you can support Disrupted and other programming on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. Thanks for listening. Hi, I'm Harriet Jones. I'm here with Katie Talarski, listening along with you to Disrupted, enjoying this program very much today, uh, and hopefully you are too. Um, we're taking just a few minutes now at the end of the show to ask for your pledge of support for this extraordinary programming. Um, it's If it's a show that you find that you're coming to make a date with each Wednesday, uh, then you know hopefully it's something that you feel like you would love to step forward now and support, because that's really what we look for uh, from our audiences is to uh, give us that pledge of support um, and to, you know, put your dollars where your ears are, as it were. And um, that's the way that we get our support. That's the, how we rely on, on our audiences to do that for us. So if you're able to do that, 1-800-584-2788, 1-800-584-2788 or wnpr.org. 1-800-584-2788 is the number to call to support Disrupted. Uh, we uh, just wrapped up listening to a great show with Melissa Harris-Perry. Um, fascinating conversation. We hope you enjoyed it, too. Um, a lot of, you know, Kalila's um, specialty, one of the things she wrote a book about is identity politics, um, you know, we have a lot of really interesting political conversations on this show, and um, it's fun to just um, sort of see how Kalila's brain works and the questions that she asks and um, and learn a whole lot. So, again, we hope that you are learning a lot. We hope that you are um, appreciating this program, and uh, we're asking you to support it to help us reach our goals to keep this programming coming to you on Connecticut Public Radio. The number is 1-800-584-2788. Again, that's 1-800-584-2788 or wnpr.org slash donate. You know, maybe you're finding that Connecticut Public has become important to you in new and different ways over the last year as we've all readapted to life in the pandemic. You know, maybe you're out on the road more, maybe you're at home more, whatever it is, your life has very, very likely changed a lot in the last year. And we hope that you've taken us right along with you on that journey. Um, uh, you know, hopefully you find that what we're doing on the radio here fits into your lifestyle and helps keep you informed in these, you know, really challenging times. And if that's the case, we would love it if you could step forward with a, a pledge of support for the station and show your love uh, by stepping up with some dollars. So 1-800-584-2788 is the way that you can show your appreciation for the station. 1-800-584-2788 or online at wmpr.org. And thank you so much for your pledge of support.